0: In the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus traveled around Galilee, teaching and healing. Crowds gathered and followed him. Jesus went up on a mountain and taught the most famous sermon ever given, the Sermon on the Mount. In this sermon, he starts with eight statements that all begin with the word, blessed. Join us as we journey through these eight descriptions that show where true joy and abundant life can be found. Hey, welcome to Grace Life. Come on, let's put our hands together and welcome all those in the room for the very first time. Thank you for joining us online. We are so excited to have you. We are glad that you are with us here at Grace Life Church. So I don't know about you guys, but I'm not a crier, but when I watch people get baptized, I start to cry. I mean, I'm sitting up here in the front row, watching all those folks get baptized, and again, I am crying like a little baby. I'm with the grandpa that was here baptizing or praying for his granddaughter. Man, it's just something powerful. And uh, man, what an opportunity to be here. I just wanna say thank you to everybody that got baptized and just how powerful that is. What an amazing, absolutely. We can celebrate that. Let's celebrate that. We celebrate a lot of things in our lives and that's definitely something worth celebrating. So a few weeks ago, as you guys were here, you know I like to start off with something light, something kind of funny, so let me start off by telling you kind of a funny story. Uh, It's about three guys that went fishing. The funny part about this story is gonna come at the end, but it's kind of funny in the beginning, too. It was a pastor, a priest, and an evangelist that decided to go fishing one morning. And so one Saturday morning, they decide to get up early. I think it's about eight o'clock in the morning or so, so the story goes. And so they get up, they get in a rowboat, like kind of one of those John boats. They row out to the center of the lake, and they start to fish. They cast out their lines. And so they're casting all day long, and they're fishing, and they're fishing, and they're fishing, and they aren't catching anything. Has anybody ever been out on the lake and not caught anything after a whole day of fishing? Yeah, amen, I've been there too. It's frustrating, but I'll tell you what they were doing is they were drinking a lot of water because it was in the middle of the day, probably here in Columbia, South Carolina, and it was hot, and it was in the middle of summer, and they're sweating, so they're drinking some water, some Coke or Sprite or something like that. My favorite thing is probably a raspberry bubbly. They're fantastic. Uh, Pastor Jimmy has some of those tucked away in a little refrigerator in his office, uh, just some flavored water. Uh, don't tell him, uh, he's actually sitting here right now with us, but don't tell him I'm the one that comes in and sneaks in and steals all his raspberry bubblies, you know? so don't tell him, okay? It's not stealing, I'm borrowing forever. I'm a pastor, come on, you guys are horrible, don't say that. So listen, these guys are out, they're out fishing, they're not catching anything, but they're drinking and they're drinking. What happens when you're out in the sun all day long and you're drinking water all day long? You gotta go to the bathroom. So the pastor says to himself, man, I really gotta go to the bathroom, I gotta go pee, but I don't wanna make the other guys stop fishing, we haven't even caught anything yet. Well, after a few minutes, the priest says, listen, guys, I have to go to the bathroom too, and the pastor's thinking, all right, well, maybe we'll go in now. But the priest steps up in the middle of the boat, he steps out onto the water, walks across the water, goes to the shore, goes into the bushes for a few minutes, comes back out to the water, comes back to the boat, exactly the way he came, sits back in the boat. The pastor thinks to himself, oh my goodness, what a man of faith, I can't believe this. How in the world, this guy just jumped out of the boat, walked across the water, went into the bushes, I, I can't believe it. So a few minutes later, the evangelist says, man, I have to go to the bathroom too. He steps up in the middle of the boat, hops out into the water, walks exactly the same way the priest did, goes into the bushes. He comes back exactly the same way, sits down in the boat, says, all right guys, yeah, I'm feeling better too. Now the pastor's thinking to himself, oh my gosh, It's two men of faith here. I mean, this is like a Bible story right in front of my eyes, like Peter that walked in the waters, like Jesus, I can't believe it. So he he gets enough faith up inside of him, and he jumps up and says, all right, guys, listen, I gotta go to the bathroom too. He steps out onto the water, sinks right to the bottom. The priest looks over at the evangelist and says, do you think we should have told him where the stones are? Come on, come on, that's a funny joke. Y'all can tell that somebody at lunch today, it's gonna be great, you're like, oh my gosh, the dad jokes have got to stop with this guy. (laughs) They're, They're never gonna stop, they're just gonna keep coming and coming. Now listen guys, let's talk about something more important today than jokes, and that is we are in the second week of a series called Blessed. What this series is all about is we are gonna be looking over the eight beatitudes. The eight beatitudes that Jesus gave in the very beginning of his sermon on the mount. Maybe you guys have heard of that sermon before. It's found in Matthew chapters five, six, and seven. In fact, over the next eight weeks, I'd encourage you, if you have some time, read over those verses, Matthew five, six, and seven in in those chapters, and I think you're gonna find some great things in it. What this series is, we're gonna be looking at really just those first eight statements that Jesus makes in that sermon, and I've had the opportunity, actually, to stand well, tradition says about in the hillside that Jesus gave those right in Israel. And so it was fantastic just picturing a crowd of people gathered where Jesus is able to talk about some of the, maybe some of the most important words he said. I mean, there's not that some are more important than others, but he gave some very important words. In fact, if you look in the New Testament, depending on what translation you're reading, there are some words that are in black and some words that are written in red in different color ink. And if you don't know, all the words that are in red are the words that Jesus Spoke directly, like out of his mouth. Those are the ones that are recorded in the New Testament. And if you look at Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7, there are more words in red at one spot than just about any other place in the New Testament. It's pretty awesome. So let's read over these quickly that we're gonna find in Matthew chapter 5. We talked about the first one last week. It's blessed are the poor in spirit. Pastor Jimmy talked to us about that, kind of how it's so different than what we may have thought that it was. If, if you haven't heard that sermon yet, I'd encourage you to go onto our website and check out part one. All eight of these are gonna be really important because they all fit together. I'll talk about that in just a minute. This week, we're gonna look at blessed are those who mourn. We'll look at blessed are the, blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, blessed are the merciful, blessed are the pure in heart, blessed are the peacemakers, and we'll finish up the series with blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. So now all eight of these statements are meant to be working in, in like cohesion with us in each of our lives all the time. You might say to yourself, all right, well, I heard three or four on that list, Eric, that I'm pretty good at. In fact, I feel like I got those on lockdown. You know, I nailed those already. But what about the other ones, the five, six, seven, eight, one, or something like that? What Jesus is trying to tell us in our lives as he's speaking to us through his word here, that we're supposed to have all eight of these in operation all of the time. Man, that's, that's harder to do. When I think about having all eight at it, all eight working, I think to myself, man, you know what? I hope somebody teaches me how to do that. Well, guess what? We're gonna do that at Grace Life Church over the next eight weeks. We're gonna help us understand how important it is to have these eight things working in our lives and what these eight things are. Sometimes we can read the Bible because of the context for so many thousands of years ago, and we can look at it and we can say to ourselves, I'm not really sure what it is the Bible's trying to say with those verses. And so we're gonna help explain that to you. And this was important for Jesus, from Jesus' perspective also. In fact, if the listeners in the beginning of his statements didn't get how important it was, he's gonna continue on some other aspects that he's gonna speak about in Matthew five, verse 14. So he's gonna talk about how it's important for his people, for all of us, to be salt and light. But let's kinda zero in on one particular verse here in Matthew five, verse 14. He says, you are the light of the world. You know, when I first read that, I think to myself, no, Jesus, you're the light of the world, not me but what he's saying to us is that he's working through us and in us so people see Jesus when people see us having these beatitudes at work. That's essentially what he's saying. He says, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. When I think of that verse, I think about this one time where I went to Southern Guyana. Guyana is a country in South America, it's right on the northern border, right in between Venezuela, then you have Guyana, then you have Suriname and French Guyana. And when you look at the country and, and you fly into Southern Guyana, it is like another world. I mean, not just another country. I remember flying in and the airplane that we flew in from, we had a layover, but on the, 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 the flight on the way into Lethem, into Guyana, was a plane that you don't normally ride in. It was one of those, like, kind of eight-seaters. It was a, a plane that wasn't pressurized, the cabin, and they had great big wheels. And I wasn't sure initially why we were getting on the plane that had big wheels, but then I realized when we landed, because it's one of those landings where you kind of bounce and you come to a stop, you've been on one of those planes, it's pretty crazy. Uh, in fact, it was interesting, the, the pilot on one of our trips was from, uh, a, from Canada, he was a Canadian pilot, and he let us all take turns of getting out of the plane and get into the co-pilot seat and fly the plane. So that was a pretty awesome trip. I got to actually fly my first plane that day. You're thinking, that's crazy. Well, listen, people do it different way. In different places. So, anyways, we get into Lethem, Guyana, and it's a different kind of city. Uh, There's really just like, you know, stone uh, houses that are made and and really simple living accommodations. In fact, the city or the town of Lethem doesn't have electric uh, or it doesn't have running water. It doesn't have either one. And so, what the town has is how. It has a large generator that when it's turned on, the town gets electric and water, which you never really know when you're there how often the town is going to turn on the generator. In fact, they may say, okay, today it's going to be on at five o'clock, but they shut it off at two o'clock. And you think to yourself, oh man, I wish I would have taken that shower, you know, because it's going to be cold water now. And so anyways, we decide that we're going to go into some villages that are a little bit further, a little bit off the beaten path. And so there are some indigenous, even nomadic villages that are about 20 miles away from this town. So we decide what we're gonna do is we're going to kinda rent or borrow a smaller generator and we're gonna take it into the town or into the further villages because some of these villages have never seen electric or water or anything like that before. They've never seen electricity. So we have the smaller generator, but it's heavy enough that two people have to carry. So if you can kinda get this picture, we have you know one guy on one side, another guy on the other side, and, and we're carrying this generator five, 10, 15 miles to the furthest villages. So when we get to the further village, the farthest village, we see that there's these uh, 20 or 30 banops. What a banop is, is where people live, it's their home. What a banop is, is there's four posts with kind of a thatched roof. You can imagine some palm fronds kind of stuck on top of it. There's 20 or 30 or 40 of those, depending on the size of the village, on the side of a mountainside, on the side of like a country hillside, and in the middle is a larger banop, a larger tiki hut, and that's where the community will come together and they'll tell stories or they'll dance and they'll have fun. So we decide one day that we're going to carry this generator into the middle of this village. And when we get there, remember, people have never seen electricity before. Now this generator, it was a little bit beat up. The part where you know where you gotta pull the rope to make the generator go, the motor go, it's broken. So we take a piece of rope and we wrap it around. And a couple times, you know, we pull it and the rope comes off. A couple other times it gets stuck and we're getting frustrated. And so eventually we get it, the generator's running but the outlet's broken out of it too, so we had to carry about a 50-foot piece of lamp cord with us. So we take the two pieces of lamp cord and we stick it in where the outlet's supposed to go. right? And then the other end, we uncoil the lamp cord and we take it up where the banop is, way up into the top of where the, the tiki hut is, about 10, 12 feet near, and we have a single light bulb. We take that light bulb and we tape the one piece of the lamp cord on the one side, and then we tape the other piece on the other side, so that way the light will light. So it's a completely dark village, and, and there's no moon out that night. We fire up that generator, we get the light bulb going just the way it's supposed to be, and that light bulb lights, and it is amazing how bright. It's a single watt or single uh, 60 watt bulb. It makes that entire little village area bright. When, when you are in complete darkness, it is amazing what the smallest light can actually do. We read that verse again. You know what happened to is all those people from that village, they all came up and they, helped, they listened to us preach the gospel. Let me read that verse again because that picture is kind of what Jesus is asking us to do as his people as we have these eight beatitudes in our lives working. He says, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket. Right? Once we got that light bulb going after all that time, we didn't put a blanket around it. No, we put it on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, it's gonna to talk to us now. Let your light shine before others. Let these beatitudes be working in your life all the time. Why? So that they may see your good works. Who? The people around us. The people living in darkness. And give glory to your Father who is in heaven. You know, these beatitudes working in our lives that we're gonna learn about over the next series of weeks, it's not just about having those things work in our lives for our own benefit, although there will be some great benefit that we have, but it's also so that way other people can see the light of Jesus shining in a very dark world. You might say to yourself, well, Eric, listen, you don't understand what it's like living next to my neighbor. I mean, this guy or this group, I mean, you have no idea, it is crazy. If you live there, then you wouldn't be saying that. You know what I think? I think that if you live next to the darkest situation you can possibly imagine, that is why Jesus has chosen you to live there, because your light is gonna shine the brightest. When your light shines in the middle of the darkness, it is amazing how much light actually does get cast. So today we're gonna look at that second beatitude. This is it, it's Matthew 5, 4. It says, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Like Pastor Jimmy talked about last week throughout this series, we're gonna use the word blessed instead of happy. Some translations do use the word happy, so they would say happy are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted but imagine using the word happy there in place of this word. Basically, Jesus would be saying you're happy when you're sad or you're happy when you mourn. Has anyone ever actually went through like, some true mourning? Maybe it's from a sickness that you went through or a loss of a loved one. I mean, that's why we think maybe happy isn't the best word because Jesus isn't saying, hey, you should be happy when you're going through those hard times. No, actually, there's a time in which the Bible even talks about that we should mourn, and there's moments for sadness, and there's moments for reflection. So if you find yourself in the middle of one of those moments today, joining us live or even online, we want to make sure that you, know, you have permission from Jesus to be able to mourn through those things in the right way, to feel the right set of emotions and the right set of circumstances, of course. So what does it mean? What well, means this, that you're the healthiest when you are undone before God? Jesus is saying here, he's actually making a tie directly to this idea of repentance. When we are undone, when we are laid bare before God, when we give him every single thing that we have and we lay it down at his feet before his throne and we lower ourselves to a position where we say, God, we give it all to you. It's all you. So what does it mean to be undone before God? It means to truly mourn over sin, not loss to truly mourn over sin, not loss. Because we do experience some loss in life, but we all have sin that we have to go before God and we have to repent of. I remember a time two and a half years ago when we woke up one morning, my wife and I, we have six children, and at the time we had six children, and two and a half years ago when we woke up, and one of our children, one of our boys, was completely yellow. Like his skin was yellow, the whites of his eyes were yellow, his teeth were almost yellowing, his his fingernails were yellow. And it wasn't because he had colored on himself or something like that. We wish that's what was going on. But we wake up and we realize, man, we better take this guy to the doctor because we wanna see what in the world is going on. So we take him to the doctor that first morning, and they do some blood work. I think it was the first time he'd ever had a blood test done. Uh, he'd have many more to come. And so he, he'd do this blood test, and they, you know, they find the vein, and you can imagine a little kid getting poked and everything, and, and so they, they do this blood test, and, and they tell us, okay, Mr. and Mrs. Schultz, uh, you, know, you can go home for now, and we'll call you when the blood results come in. Okay, so that day goes by, and then we get up the next morning, and, and I get ready, and I go to work in the morning, and my wife gets a phone call from the doctor's office. Has anyone ever received a phone call that changed your life? Maybe it was a text or a call or someone came and knocked on your door and and the news that they gave you would change your destiny, your life forever. So they call and they tell us, listen, what you need to do is you need to take your son and put him in the car and drive him to Duke Research Hospital right now. We were about an hour away living in Raleigh. And they said, this is what you must do because his liver levels that are supposed to be, his two particular levels that they measure for the liver, and they're supposed to be around you know, the 20s and 30s. Both of these are in the high 2000s, almost 3000s. And they say to us, okay, you have to go right now. So we take him in the car. I come home from work. We drive up to the hospital, and we get there, and they start doing a series of tests and more blood work and more things, and, and they tell us, well, it must be, you know, because he's having a reaction to this virus or this thing or that, so they're doing test after test after test, trying to knock things out. You know, sometimes in the medical world, you don't really know what it is until you know what it's not. So what they're trying to do is they're trying to find out what it, what it is by determining what it's not. So they're saying it's not this, it's not this, it's not this, it's not this. We're like day three, day four, I mean he's losing weight like pounds a day. And, and our son at the time, he's six years old, so he doesn't have a lot to weight to lose anyways. And so he's getting skinnier and skinnier and skinnier. And he's turning more and more yellow and his face is sinking in and he's dying. And so we're, we're going through this process and they say listen, we just can't figure out what's going on so we're gonna have to do a liver biopsy. Well now it's Friday, we've gotten in Monday morning, it's Friday afternoon, probably two or three o'clock in the afternoon. And so they tell us, okay, we're gonna do this liver biopsy so we can figure out what's happening. So about three or four o'clock in the afternoon, they come and say, okay, we'll change our mind. We're not gonna do the liver biopsy now. We're going to have you come back in next week and do the liver biopsy. It's so, okay, and we go home. It's an interesting moment because what's happening is, is usually from our point of view, when you come home from the hospital, you come home when you're better, not when you're sicker. So we take this little guy, put him in the car, and we have to carry him, he's so weak. We put him in the car and we drive home. And we think to ourselves, what is going on? And this this feeling starts to come inside of me that I'm starting to get frustrated. I'm starting to get frustrated because the doctors don't know what they're doing from my perspective. I'm starting to get frustrated because God is kind of allowing these things to start to take place, and I, I don't want it. Like, I, I, I've, I've walked through enough pain and suffering with people that have gone through hard things, health things in their life, and thinking to myself, honestly, like, our family's been pretty healthy, and I'm just being selfish and prideful in the moment, and I'm thinking, I don't wanna walk through this. What is even gonna happen here? So after the next two or three months, they can't really figure it out. They do a liver biopsy, and it's kind of, you know, inconclusive, and they just don't know what's going on. So two months, three months, four months go, and they say, let's just wait it out There's some experimental things we can try, but we think his liver might just clear it. So two, three, four months go by and his liver clears it. He actually gets better. Our family says, hey man, praise God, it's over, we're done. Well, the problem is we didn't know yet, but as his liver levels were going down, so were all of his blood levels. So his platelets were going down, his white count was going down, his his red count, his hemoglobin count was all going down. And they didn't know what was going on again. So now we go back in to do a bunch. I mean, he's on like seven, eight, nine biopsies now. He's having bone marrow biopsies. He has to have biopsy upon biopsy upon biopsy, and eventually they finally come to a conclusion that he has a, a very rare disease. Like two hundred people in the, like internationally year get diagnosed with this called aplastic anemia. It's kind of a distant cousin to leukemia because of the type of treatment and the things that he has to go through. So about two years ago, they bring us into a room and they tell us, "Okay, listen." Um, your son's cellularity inside of his bone marrow, his factory for making these things isn't working, so we're gonna have to do a bone marrow transplant. So if you, if you know anything about bone marrow transplants, it is key, it is key that you have a match, a donor, a match donor, which comes from a brother or a sister. So our children go through that process of finding that out and we find out of our other five children, three of them are perfect full matches. So that's fantastic. So we pick the right one and and one day my my daughter who was selected, she goes in and and they take a liter of her bone marrow out of her back hip through nine different aspirations and they they take that one liter of blood and they rush it up to him up on the second floor or third floor, wherever we're at, and they give him that bone marrow and the process starts to unfold. Well, up before that, the last few days, you know, he's going through chemo and all sorts of drugs and the things, I mean, if I couldn't even put a picture on the screen because it's, it's just horrible looking um, and where he's at and his body is. And I remember one particular moment. I remember one moment when he was laying there in the bed and I'm getting ready to live, or sit next to him because you have to stay with him. I mean, we're at Durham and Duke for like three or four months, the whole process. It just takes a long time for this to, to go through. And anyways, I'm walking through uh, this process with him. He's laying in the bed next to me. And I remember thinking and crying out to God, God, why are you letting this happen? I mean, not like in, 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 a, in the right way, but in the wrong way. I'm thinking to myself, God, you know, I even said this out loud, I believe, I'm like, God, I'm a pastor. <laughs> I mean, which is wrong, I mean, that's wrong. Um, but in that moment, I'm thinking to myself, why would you let our family have to go through this process? I don't wanna go through this. This is hard, it's broken. I'm having to like, leave the church and I'm pastoring at the time, and I mean, it's just, it's just frustrating. And in that moment, I realized that I wasn't putting my trust in God, instead I'm putting my trust in myself. I'm getting frustrated with every time the doctor walks in the room, I'm getting frustrated with every time some treatment doesn't work the way that's supposed to, I'm getting frustrated every time he's getting sicker instead of better, and I'm just getting frustrated more and more and more. And God just kinda spoke to me, he's like, well you gotta give it over to me. You gotta give this over to me. The place in which you are, you have to give over to me. I mean, I already know God's a healer. I know God can heal my son, but the reason that I was living in the frustration, the reason that I was living in this, in this mode of operation was because I was choosing to walk and look at it my own way instead of myself. So I go before the Lord, and I'm just like, God, I'm sorry. I repent. Please forgive me. Help me to understand that even in this, I have to trust you no matter what happens next. And in that moment, comfort of God came. The the difference between the way that I was able to walk out that process, not knowing what was gonna happen with my son in the days to come, compared to the way that I was able to right before that was a stark difference because of what this verse says. Blessed are those who mourn or repent or are undone before God for they shall be comforted. See, I was wanting comfort from my circumstances rather than comfort from the sin that I was holding up inside of me. See, the sin is what was causing all the discomfort. Now, was I happy about what was happening with my son? But no, I just talked to you about that, and it's okay to mourn some of the things that are happening. What is not okay is it's not okay to hold yourself in a position where you think you know what God should do better than God knows himself. That's not the place that we wanna put ourselves, and that's the place that I had put myself, See, I transferred my trust in myself back to trusting God. By not trusting, I was not letting go of control. I was ultimately operating in fear and in pride. And in both of those situations, when I surrendered surrendered and repented, meaning that I just turned from the way that I was going and I turned back to the way that God wanted. When that moment came is when comfort came in my life. God was right there. He was always there. But I realized his presence in a new way. You know, to be honest with you, I'm not even sure that I fully recognized what was happening in that moment until I was studying for this message this week. When I looked at the scripture and it was clear, oh, you're talking about repentance here. You're talking about repentance. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who are repentant. Blessed are those who are undone. Blessed are those who give their life control over to you and when they do that, they shall be comforted. That's what happened in that moment, God. I gave that to you. And your comfort came. You know, there's so many different ways in life that can bring us to a place of being undone or being in a place of mourning or being in a place of repentance. It could be in that spot where you have a lack of trust in times of sickness and disease, but sometimes it can be something so much more simple than that. It could be even in a moment where you're you're bad-mouthing a friend or a coworker or an employer, or a commander. You might have a spot where they walk in and they tell you something and you don't like it. You think it should be done a different way. Maybe it should be done a different way. But in that moment, we have a choice. Are we gonna hold on to what God's plan for this situation is or are we gonna choose that we want what we want? And when we do that, we kinda get all spun up inside, don't we? Man, I do. I get spun up inside. When I, when I choose to put control back into my hands and to hold it myself, I'm just not strong enough and smart enough and wise enough to know what to do, so I get all spun up, and sometimes we can do that too, but the second that we give that back over to God, what happens? That comfort comes. It could be something as common as being short-tempered with a child or a spouse or a hard time in our marriage. You know, sometimes marriages are tough, My wife and I, we've been married just over 21 years. It's fantastic, we love that. Um, But even back in February, when I came here to preach here at Grace Life Church, we talked about some times that we were just going on with some things in our marriage that was just nonsense. Why was that stuff going on? Because we weren't repentant. (laughs) We chose to, to hold on to the things that we thought we knew better rather than the way that God knew. It can be even that with something with your child. It could be something as simple as uh, a professor, or not a professor in your child's life, probably a teacher in your child's life, but a a teacher sends home a huge science project and you're getting ready to go on a two-week vacation. Why in the world would that science teacher make us do that project when we know We're getting ready to go on vacation. This is spring break here. What kind of teacher is this? This is ridiculous. You can get all spun up, or you can choose, just let that go. And just let God work in those areas in your life and say, you know what, I'm just gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna let God take this position in my soul right now. It's a place of realizing we need God because of our sinfulness. Again, remember, Matthew 5, 4, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Mourning will always bring sorrow, always. Mourning will always bring sorrow. But you see, the thing is, is that the Bible talks about two different types of sorrow talks about godly sorrow and worldly sorrow. So we wanna make sure that while we're mourning and we fall, fall into sorrow, we wanna make sure that we're going in the direction of godly sorrow, not worldly sorrow. So 2 Corinthians 7, 8 says this. This is Paul talking here. And Paul had just written the letter to the Corinthian church, the letter of 1 Corinthians, which really dealt with some things inside of their lives and, and they had to come to repentance on a couple things. And we're gonna see that to be true here in the letter of 2 Corinthians because Paul's gonna follow up this letter and he's gonna talk about what happened from their response in the first letter. So Paul says, I am not sorry that I sent that severe letter to you, though I was sorry at first. For I know it was painful to you for a little while. Now I'm glad that I sent it. So he's looking back to how he felt before, but now he's looking to how he felt now, how he feels now. It's kind of like hashtag like sorry, not sorry. You know what I'm talking about? Like You guys ever see that on, so, on the socials? I mean, people will hashtag that all the time. And uh, this is like Paul, I think he like, invented this idea of sorry, not sorry. He's like, I'm sorry I sent it. No, I'm not sorry. You know what, I'm not sorry at all. Let me see, let's see why. It says in verse nine, now I'm glad that I sent it, not because it hurts you, of course, but because the pain caused you to repent and to change your ways. You know, sometimes what we do in life is we just run away from the pain. We run away from the things that cause us to repent because it doesn't feel good in the moment. Now I couldn't run away from what was happening with my son, but what happened was in that moment it brought me to a place where I could choose to either lay down my life and let God have control or I could keep control myself. And I promise you, I'm I'm not good at controlling situations as God is. Uh, And so I had to lay that down. God wants his people, it says, it was the kind of sorrow God wants his people to have so that you were not harmed by us in any way. See, when we walk through godly sorrow, Ultimately, it's for our good, we're not harmed, and God allows us to move on with the better things that he has for us in our lives. See, if I wouldn't have walked through that process, I may have continued to grab a hold of the control that God knew I needed to release, but instead, he allowed me and our family to walk through this process. That way, we can lay it down, and I'll tell you, it's changed our family's life. It's changed our life. Now, would I want anyone to go through that process of what happened with my son? Of course not. But remember, it's not about mourning your loss. It's about mourning your sin. So, what I'm talking about is I look back and I'm sorry for the sin that I was holding on to, which came out in pride and fear and control. Verse 10 says, for that kind of sorrow, the sorrow that we're talking about, God wants us to experience. Why? Because it leads us away from sin and it results in salvation. Do you hear that? That's the good news. So in the moment, it doesn't feel good. In the moment we don't want to go through it. But what is God doing inside of our life? He's leading us to a place and an experience that leads us away from sin and it results in salvation. And it's not just salvation in the sense of that one time, like Pastor Jimmy was talking about before baptism, where we go and we say, oh God, we're sorry for our sins. Absolutely, that's an important moment in life. But there's more beyond that. There's that moment where we grab a hold of our life and we say, we wanna to continue to walk in, in store with the things that God has for us in our lives. That's what this verse is talking about. For, the, for that was a kind of sorrow God wants us to experience and it leads us away from sin and results in salvation. There's no regret for that kind of sorrow. There's loss sometimes. There's loss sometimes, but there's no regret. There's loss, but there's no regret. But worldly sorrow which lacks repentance, results in spiritual death. See, what would have happened is if I would have held on to that sin that I was holding on to of pride and fear and control, as my son continued down his journey of trying to be better and his health coming back to his system and his body, I would have continued to be spun up and upset and trying to figure those things out myself and it wouldn't have worked in my own soul the way that God had intended it. Now I can tell you, thankfully, two years down the road after his bone marrow transplant. In fact, in October, we're gonna celebrate with my son, our family, of a year in remission, meaning two years away from that bone marrow transplant. So we're excited about that. Absolutely, we can celebrate that. We, we celebrate that, and we're thankful for that. In fact, in October, he's gonna have what's called a rebirth day. Anyone that has a bone marrow transplant, you have a biological birth, but you also have the birthday you have in which you had that bone marrow transplant because in the medical community, it's like you're being born again because you're actually getting bone marrow from someone else that's now been infused in your system and now you have that bone marrow coinciding with your own system. It's called a rebirth and we celebrate that every year. But look at verse 11, and this is important because sometimes in our lives, I think, that it feels like we can't continue to go on. Look what Paul says here. Just see what this godly sorrow produced in you. When you do it the right way, here are some, some things that it produces. Such earnestness, such concern to clear your such concern to clear yourself, such indignation, such alarm, such a longing to see me talking about the first letter, such zeal and such a readiness to punish wrong. You showed that you have done everything necessary to make it right. See, that's the picture of repentance. What does it mean to have godly sorrow? It means instead of trying to control, we trust. Instead of trying to justify our negative remarks about others, we apologize. We just let that go and apologize. Instead of buying a toy for the child that we made cry, we simply ask their forgiveness. In all cases, we repent and we ask for God's forgiveness. We go before him. Now we've heard some stories, we've read some things in scripture. I wanna give you three practical things that you can take away, three quick things. We'll read a couple more scriptures and then we'll be finished here today. The first thing is, is something that undone does not mean. Undone does not mean unraveled. We've probably been there before, where we've seen someone unraveled right before our eyes. Maybe you've unraveled right before someone else's eyes. It's not a pretty picture, right? It's not something that we want to do. What does being undone mean? What does mourning truly mean? It is the appropriate response to sin. It's when you recognize your need for God. What is being unraveled equal? Unraveled means it's the reaction that activates self-works in an attempt to fix your own circumstances. We've all been there, we've tried to do that. That's not what we wanna do. We must choose to respond rather than allow ourselves to react. We all have a moment when we realize and we stand before that situation, when we can choose to repent and lay that thing down and relinquish control before God or we can grab a hold of it and we can stay in that position. I'll tell you, when storms come, we quickly realize where we are. Are we undone or are we unraveled? At the end of the Sermon on the Mount, that's the exact illustration that Jesus uses. He says that there's some that have built their house on the sand, there's some that have built their house on the rock. What happens when the storms of life come? The one that's built their house on the rock stands. The one that builds their house on the rock, on the sand, unravels. That's not where we wanna be. So undone does not mean unraveled. Undone also does not mean unbroken. In fact, when we mourn, when we're repentant, we must be broken before God. When we are mourning our sin, we recognize that we're not right before God. When we recognize that, our will begins to break. Our pride begins to break what we've built on our own begins to break and crumble. We let God wipe that away. And we say, God, we're broken before you. We allow him to come in and say, hey God, take control of the situation. So undone does not mean unraveled. Undone does not mean unbroken. What does undone mean? It means repentance. This is the culminating point. Mourning should always lead to repentance. We can recognize that we can be made right with God through Jesus, but it also means staying in a place where we are always sorry for our sin. Now, let me step back and talk to two different groups. You might be in the group similar to the place that I was at, and that's a position kind of of pride. Well, you say to yourself, Uh, You know, I know what's right for my life. I know what's best. I kind of fall into that. God, most of the time my interaction with God is God has to come and he has to kind of help me understand that I'm not all that, right? It's like he has to come and he has to tell me, all right, Eric, listen, uh, remember uh, there's some things going on in your life that you need to learn from here. You know, God literally sends my wife, Lonnie, into my life for those purposes all the time. I could get mad at her. The truth is I celebrate that. I'm so thankful that God allows my wife to come to me, right, in, in private, if it were, before it gets public. Like, let's not, let's not chastise how, the work that God uses in our spouses. Thank God he uses our spouses. Because sometimes he, he reveals some things inside of us that if we don't fix, it just gets bigger and bigger and bigger, but if we're smart, we'll listen to our spouse and we'll be like, yeah, I need to check that, right? That happens between my wife and I all the time. The second aspect, or the second group of people and if, if you're in the first group, you should just probably plug your ears right now. The second group of people are people that walk in shame and regret. and you kinda stay in this unhealthy, always sorry zone, and you feel like your life's never worth it, and you feel like your life is never gonna measure up, and it's never going and even though Jesus did what he said he did, and, and you believe it, you kinda just walk in this place. I, I want you to know that that is not what Jesus is talking about here when he's talking about repentance. He's talking about the healthy aspect of coming before God, putting our trust in him, making him our king in every area of our lives. In that hospital with my son, I recognized I wasn't trusting in God's provision. So I repented and I opened up my hand, my hands, and I even visualized my son in my hands and I put him in God's hands. And then I took my hands away. (laughs) Kind of like, I had to like close them, tie them behind my back. God, he's yours, regardless of what's gonna happen. He is yours. And in that moment, I was comforted. God was with us. He helped us walk through every step of the way. Was he always there? Of course, but I didn't realize that he was right there and his comforting power was there because I need to repent over some things. I need to lay some things down before him. I needed to become undone. You know, I'm new here at Grace Life Church. I've only been here a couple months, and part of my time here is joining some life groups, and there are some life groups that you guys can join, even at the end of the service today. You can walk out of this room, and and you can join a a group by one of our displays, or if you're online, you can go to the website right now, or anybody can go to the website and plug in. And One of the groups that I've joined this cycle, this, this season, is called Grow Spirit Life. And in Grow Spirit Life this week, This was a section that was read out of the book. It's from Pastor Jimmy. It says, the Holy Spirit, God himself, is our spiritual renovator. You shouldn't be afraid of God living in you. When he moved in, he knew you were a fixer-upper. Moreover, he came because you need renovation. He never intended to move into a model home. You know, when God saw you, he saw every aspect of your life. In fact, he saw you before he saved you. He saw you. He knows you. He didn't look at your life and say, oh, that one's really gonna be able to clean up their life. I'm gonna save that one. No, it's, it's not like that. He looks at us. He knows we need repair. He knows we need fixing. He knows some people struggle in pride. He knows some people struggle in regret and shame, and yet he still comes. He opens up his heart to us, his arms to us, says, come on in. All we have to do is turn and go his way. It's called repentance. Let's go before the Lord right now and give over an area of our life that maybe we're holding on to. Would you bow your heads and pray with me? Father, I come before you today. Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you, God, for who you are. I thank you, Lord, that you have an opportunity to continue to work in our lives, not just at the moment of salvation, but as we continue down this road of repentance, Lord, it's daily, sometimes hourly, sometimes minute by minute we need you that much. We really all do. You know, a moment ago I talked about holding up my hands and just giving God my son. Maybe there's an area of your life where you need to give over control. Maybe it's pride, maybe it's fear, maybe it's insecurity. Maybe there's some area you need to repent. You need to give it to him. Just let God come in to your soul, to your space, to your mind right now and reveal those spots to you. Right now, right now, he's here. He's here. He's here at home online as you're watching. He's here right now in this room. He's doing, he's doing a work in people's lives. Don't, don't, don't miss out on that opportunity because he's here right now. God, I pray that you would come and even in my own life, Lord, it's my prayer. Lord, I pray that you would come in my own life and, and you would reveal things in my life, Lord, that I need to give to you. And I open up my hands and I put them in your hands and I put my hands back again, Lord. Do it. I need it. Lord, we all need it. Just spend that moment if you need to. I wanna to speak to another group of people. Maybe you're here this morning and, and you've never, initially, you've never for the first time given your life to Jesus. Well, I'm gonna say a prayer and just underneath the, your breath or just in your mind, your own heart, you can say this prayer uh, after me and give your life to Jesus with all of your heart. Turn from the way you're going and turn to make Jesus your king. Would you pray with me? Just under your breath, dear God, I come before you today. Jesus, I make you my king. I repent of my sins. I turn from the way that I've been going and I grab a hold of the hope that I can have in you. I make you my Lord. I make you my savior, God. I wanna live a life where you are always right there with me every step of the way. So I choose you this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. Come on, guys. Let's put our hands together.